With the worldwide pandemic going on for the past year, chances are you haven't been traveling as much as you normally would. But think back before COVID and whenever you may have traveled outside of your home country. Maybe you flew to another country for business or just for a vacation. Like most countries here in the U.S., we have a process you have to go through when you come back into the country. You have to talk with someone and show them your passport, tell them where you've been and for how long, and you have to tell them what you're bringing back into the country. This conversation makes some people really nervous. And I'm talking about people who haven't done anything wrong. Just being questioned can make some people uncomfortable. The U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has even created a presentation to let travelers know what to expect so people don't freak out. Welcome to the United States. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers take the arrival process very seriously. We are responsible for everyone's safety and security. Because security is so important, your immigration status may be subject to further review, or you may have your baggage or personal items inspected. This is a routine process to ensure the integrity of our nation's immigration, customs, and agriculture laws. During every step, you are free to ask questions of any of our officers. So let's get started. CBP wants to get you on your way. A while back, we hosted some exchange students for a year, and they were from Ecuador. They're back in Ecuador now, and we've traveled there to visit them a few times. They're kind of like our second family. But the weird thing is, I know that when we come back into the U.S., when I show my passport and the officer reads my name, there's going to be a delay. My wife has to wait while I get shuttled off into a separate room for secondary questioning, and the officers there look up some stuff on their computers. After about 45 minutes or so, they tell me I'm free to go. They never tell me any details about why I'm detained. I assume it's because someone with a similar name is on the no-fly list or something. But it's kind of stressful until they tell me I'm clear, and I know I haven't even done anything wrong. My guest today is Emily. She lives in Toronto, Canada. She was flying back home after spending some time in the Caribbean, and she too was subjected to the questioning by customs and immigration and security. Like a lot of people, she was really stressed out by this process. But in Emily's case, she had a good reason to be stressed. Strapped to her body was about $150,000 worth of cocaine. That was a bad day for her. She told me all about that, as well as how that experience led her to what she's doing today. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? This whole thing started when you were running a social media company. What, what is that, and, and what did you do? Sure. So a social media company, what we did, and this was based out of Toronto, Canada, was create content for businesses to use in their online platforms. Um, whether that was photography, video, even creating captions for them. So for them to basically help reach their audience through social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So those are the three primary ones, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. And TikTok wasn't out then, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> okay. And this involved traveling all around the world. Yep. 
Yeah, it did. Like I traveled a lot for my personal life, but then I also, by traveling through my personal life, I was able to meet so many different people abroad. And so I, I would get contacts in places that I would travel to and then be able to do the work from, from Canada. And it seems like, I mean, I've looked and I've seen a lot of your stories online where you've put made videos and things. It seems like the, this whole thing kind of started when you met a client named mm-hmm. Noah. Yeah. How did you first connect with Noah? I met Noah through my, my social media company. They had sent us, his, his business had sent us a, a message that was like, we'd really like you to help us out build our business. And oh, I was like, okay, tell me more about it. And he did. And I went out and met him at his place of work because that was one thing that I loved to do was get out there and go and meet people face to face. I find it's it's a huge asset. People don't do it enough. They want to do everything from the computer. I mean, now it's a little different different circumstances, but that was something that I loved to do because I felt it really personalized the relationship. And so I went out. Um, he, his business was like um, buying and selling cars and also like detailing them and putting on really unique paint colors and stuff like that. So it was it was a different kind of business, but it was cool. Like I liked it. You know, they had race cars and, you know, I'm, I've always been a car person. So I love going out there and seeing the new cars that were getting work done and everything like that. So it, it was cool. And he was a really, really nice guy. And you and Noah kind of developed past the client relationship. Yeah, we actually grew really close pretty fast. I mean, he, I was actually going through like a personal challenge within my within my family and I was drinking a lot and he actually was one of my confidants in this and he knew that I was trying to I don't want to say get on a better path because I wasn't ever on a bad path down this like road of criminality that wasn't me at all but I was drinking heavily and it was starting to affect my work my motivation and he told me that he had actually struggled in the past and that he had been sober so I felt really close to him because of that. And living in Toronto, I was just like a party girl. Like I still got my work done. I was highly functioning. But the people that I would meet along the way often were just someone that would want me to go drink te- tequila with them and do drugs with them till three in the morning. So meeting someone like him, I thought he was full of more substance than, let's say, the, the people that I was kind of spending my time with at that time. <laughs> what made you think that at some point that, he, that something was not quite right with him? I knew the first thing that wasn't quite right was he kept on kind of lying about his personal life. Like first he said he was separated and then he said he was divorced. And then he said, I couldn't come to the the business at certain times because, you know, his ex-wife was there. And so there was just too many mixed messages, but I kind of just put that aside. And then he started getting me all these odd presents that I never asked for. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Like I'm a girl and girls love presents. Anyone likes getting nice things from someone that they're kind of involved with. Um, But they were just something that I'd never even really wanted. Like the first thing was um, like a sound system. And I lived in a tiny condo and I was like, okay, well, I don't really, I already have my little condo sized one. I don't know why you got me this. And then he got me dessert wine, which I never, ever drank. In fact, I hated dessert wine. And then he also got me um, a Michael Kors watch, but it had no battery in it. And so there was just like very odd gifts to get. Some um, guys just don't know how to buy gifts. I know. But it was it was more than that with him though. Yeah, like he also like would help me walk my dog when I would, when I had to be places and he would lend me cars when uh when I had car problems and eventually um I ended up buying a car off him and he's like, "Oh, I found this really awesome car. Like um I'll go in on it with you and then we can you know, just fix it up and we'll have it ready. So I actually gave him the money for the car and I never got the car. There was always something going on. There was flat tire, there's engine. And then, you know, the ex-wife would be at the shop and I couldn't come. And so the, by this point, it was really starting to annoy me. And I was just about to kind of end it because, but then again, you can't just like take someone's 10 grand. That's how much I paid him and expect me to just go away. Like that was a lot of money. You know, I was a millennial living downtown Toronto. So <laughs> he kind of like had me, I don't want to say by the balls, but like, you know, he, he kind of had me in this position where I didn't want to walk away, but I also knew that there was something that was off. Do you think the deal with the car, I mean, you, you gave him 10000 and that yeah. was supposed to be like you guys were going in half yeah. and he was going to pay for the other half and get you this great car. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was just a complete scam or what was his incentive behind that? Honestly, after everything that happened, I'm, I fully believe that he used that money for something else and that was to get us on this this uh, trip. <laughs> you know, I found that a lot of times women have a sort of a sixth sense 
about guys like this. Did you, were you feeling that? Yes and no. I feel like I'm someone that always gives someone else the benefit of the doubt. And I just, at the same time, I'd also invested so much in it. And I was like, I didn't want to let go, you know, and it actually taught me a lot about loss and, and losing money. And because sometimes we don't really know how to lose. And at that point, I didn't know how to lose. I didn't want to let that go. So he invited you to go to St. Lucia. What What's involved with that? It actually started a week before that, like this whole conversation. And he's like, oh, well, I want to come talk to you at your apartment. And I'm like, okay, can you just text it? He's like, no, I don't want to talk about it over the phone. And I just assumed, okay, like maybe he was with his ex-wife or whoever and he didn't want to talk about it over the phone so i was like okay so he comes over and he's like oh i want to go on this trip with you you know like you're having a really difficult time maybe we can just go out and escape all this but there's just something that i have to do when i'm down there and i was like well what is it he's like well i'm gonna bring some drugs back oh and you can do it too if you want and i was like absolutely not you know like i traveled a lot prior to that and never for that reason never for nefarious reasons and i was almost offended that he'd even asked me that and so he left and i thought that was the end of it i was like no I'm not doing that and then he messages me a couple hours later when he knows that i'm out i usually i would always go out kind of like at night not not every night but three or four days a week and he's like forget i ever said anything about the drug smuggling like let's just me and you let's just go on this trip and i thought about it after you know six drinks and i was like you know what okay i'm gonna i'm gonna give him this last chance oh and he also said the car will be ready when you get back because I was like, what about this car? I don't want to go on this trip with this car. And and so that was another thing. He's like, I promise you when we get back from the trip, the car will be, will be ready. And so I believed him. As soon as I got home that night, he's like, send me your passport information. I sent it to him. And he honestly booked the tickets that night. And we were leaving two days later. He just sounds like an expert manipulator. Yeah. But then at the same time, I was someone that I in my past and even like now like some not as so much now but like i'm spontaneous right like i'd booked plane tickets to indonesia before and you know gone places just for for fun and and not planned everything to a t so there was this spontaneousness of this trip that was normal but obviously there's other parts of it that i other warning signs that i should have ignored but i didn't because of my my alcohol and my, my drinking and, and drug use at the time so what happened when you got there? Well, we got there and it was um it was an all-inclusive vacation and it was booked for 7 days. We left on the Friday, we were coming back on the Friday. The first 3 days were were really fun, completely normal. It was actually strange because he was drinking on that trip and he was getting me to drink on this trip and I was like, "Well, I guess if you know, you want me to drink, sure, I'll drink. I'm not going to turn down a drink. It's all-inclusive." So that's when I saw like his wish for me to get sober was kind of an illusion, but I didn't care. I was on a vacation. I just put it under the guise of, oh, okay, I'm on vacation, live it up. And then he also ended up buying like, he's like, oh, do you want some drugs? And I was like, oh, okay, like, whatever, this is weird, but okay. And so he even got us cocaine. And so definitely was not sober for the first couple of days. And then on the third day, I actually was sober in the morning. And I was about to go down to the pool. And he's like, oh, um, don't go down to the pool today because our friends are coming to pick us up. And you're going to get in the car with me. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, did you really think it was all just fun and games? Like, we're here to work. And that's when I kind of knew what was going to happen. But I still didn't believe that I would actually have to participate in at that point. That must have hit you by a surprise, but not a complete surprise. Yeah, it was like in the middle ground. I, I thought I could still weasel my way out of it. I, I was kind of shocked. And I wasn't as mad yet. I was like, okay, okay, yeah, whatever. But I did get in the car with him that afternoon and, you know, thought maybe just going along for the ride. But I knew that I was definitely on another, on a trip with one person I knew. I didn't know anyone else. And I was in another country and I, everything just kind of came rushing back to me. Like, we always say that we should have known better, but sometimes we, we ignore that, those thoughts because it's, it's, we like to, we like to be happy and we like to take shortcuts and we like to take the easy way out. I get the impression from you that you're kind of an optimist and you think like, well, things are going to turn out okay. Always. I've always been an optimist and I always believe that people are generally good. But at that time he was not, he was not good. And I also realized that I'd been tricked and I didn't feel I didn't want to feel like I'd been tricked. So I was like bound to determine to not, to not do it. 
Um, but as the day progressed and the week progressed, you know, we ended up going to a house and meeting these people and my measurements got taken and then I knew that I was kind of in it. I was in it because they, they knew everything about me and that was kind of something he used as leverage, whether that was true or not, the extent of, you know, the threats that he would say would happen. I didn't want to risk it. I didn't want to risk not doing it. So it was kind of a two-step process. The, the Wednesday we got in the car, we drove to a house where we met the people that were going to tell us exactly what we were doing and that I found out that day that he had told them that I was going to be doing it with him. And so they also had my like information, everything like that. And I got my measurements taken and then I had to go to a mall with this lady and pick out a dress. She's like, oh, like pretend to pick out a dress that you like, but I'm actually going to pick the one that you're going to wear. So it was like this like charade of shopping for drug smuggling. And we're at this local mall. She picks out a couple. I pick out one. And then eventually we leave and get back in the car. And we go back to the house. And she keeps the dress because she's actually going to be sewing in a custom. She's actually going to like sew it to kind of fit my body, but not so it's super tight. And then they all, she also ended up sewing me customized underwear, like Spanx. That's what taking my measurements was for. Yeah. And that's where the drugs were to be concealed. And so after this whole shopping charade episode happened, they dropped us off back at the resort on the Wednesday. And on the Friday, there when our flight was set to leave, we were to go to their that house again before the flight and get strapped up, basically. So you knew from Wednesday, you knew this is going to happen. How scared were you to think about what's going to happen? I was scared and I was mad and I kept telling him, like, I really don't want to do this. Like, I'm, I, I feel guilty enough flying when I haven't done anything. You know, there's always just that, that feeling that you get when you're going through an airport. Like, did I do something wrong? And at the end of the day, I, d I didn't know the seriousness of, like, I didn't know the consequences fully, but I knew that it was very, very bad. But I also didn't want to put anything else at risk. Like, I thought that this was the safest way out. And I just wanted to obey what they wanted me to do because I, didn't know how they would retaliate. Like I had an idea, but I wasn't about to put my family at risk too. So, oh, because he, yeah, he knows where you live and yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I and I also blamed myself. So I was like, you know, you got yourself into this mess. You better just get yourself out, at least out of the country. So on the final day, you know, I after kind of crying and telling him like I don't want to do this, and him trying to tell me that oh it'll be fine. Like I've done this before. Like the the people at the airport I already know that you're doing it so they'll let you th you through I mean like the domestic airport not the Canadian airport just little little like verbal what I like to say verbal vodka shots to make me feel a little bit more calm and he even said that he would take the drugs off me at Pearson when we landed so that I wouldn't actually have to face customs with the drugs on my body and so that gave me a little bit of relief that was until um we landed at Pearson you had to get through two airport securities, right? First, the, the one in St. Lucia. Yeah. And and that, did they have dogs there? Or did, did that, obviously that must have gone okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, they had a metal detector, but that was it. You just walk through a metal detector and then your bag goes through the other detector, and but it wasn't in the bag. And so apparently they knew, but I don't want to say anything. I, I can't say for sure. And obviously I don't want to make allegations that aren't true. So that was probably maybe something that he just told me. So, yeah, but I was still nervous, obviously. And on the plane ride home, it was it seemed so long and so short at the same time. It's like I was excited to land, but I was nervous as heck to land. Oh, man, I just can't. I'm feeling a little nervous just feeling <laughs> like what you were feeling on, on that flight. Yeah. I mean, this whole time you, you had how much cocaine did you have on you? It was two kilograms of cocaine. And basically, it was just stuffed in your underwear. Yeah, it was concealed in two bricks. And so these spanks, they were kind of like bike shorts with a little pouch in the front and, and in the back. And one brick was shoved in the front and one was shoved in the back. And so like on my petite body, it was pretty obvious that there was something there. It was just the most bought. I felt so ridiculous traveling like this. And I even had a cardigan on, which is another, you know, odd thing to be wearing home from a tropical destination. So <laughs> there was just a whole bunch of red flags. Right. That's like something that you'd think in training, the customs people would be trained to look for somebody wearing clothes that don't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. 
I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. The plane lands and we have our carry-on and then we have to go through the first set of the first checkpoint, which is where you give in your immigration form. And this is after he's told me, oh, I'm actually not going to take the drugs from from you anymore and keep them on my backpack. So I was furious. You know, if if I was nervous before, like I was just ringing off alarms left, right and center. And my my loyalty to him ended there 100%. But my loyalty to the task at hand did not. And that's because I didn't want to be responsible for sabotaging this operation willingly, right? So because that then if he could just blame it all on me that that I ruined it and then it really would then I really would see repercussions. So we go through the first checkpoint. Um they they give you a little piece of paper and they scribble a number number on it and you don't really know what that number means until you have to after you collect your bags and then there's one last checkpoint where you have to show your card and they see our cards and the number on it and they're like you have to go into secondary. And that's when I knew it was it was over. I felt a sense of relief. I truly, truly did because I thought, you know, we're going to get caught. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not, I'm also not going to create a scene. Had you planned ahead of time with Noah? Like what was your, your backstory so that you guys had matching stories? Did you talk about that at all? No, no. He'd given me no coaching to who I was that day. My identity was so lost. He was so disillusioned in the sense that he thought everything would just go so fine. He didn't even plan for us to get called into secondary. So when we got called in, I, he was panicking. He was panicking a hundred percent. I was panicking, but I also felt relief because I knew that I was in my home country. Right. Yeah. At least you had made it, made it back to Toronto. Yeah. In one piece. How would you rate yourself on how good you are at lying? (laughs) 
five a nine a nine if i'm like heavily intoxicated but i wasn't that day you know and normally i have four or five i, I just can't do it i took acting class and i failed you know, i didn't fail it but like i, I was like assigned the rule of it of, of an extra because i just couldn't keep a straight face and here you've got all this adrenaline going through your body uh it's not really the time for your best improv performance yeah, yeah exactly and i was i couldn't even hide the fact that i was still so mad I, as to getting bait and switch, not once, but twice. So yeah, there's the anger from, you know, being tricked again. And then there's also knowing that I was doing something very, very wrong and trying to hide it. And you're, no matter if, if you can lie with your words, you cannot control your body language sometimes when you're in these very, very high stress situations. And I'm glad, I'm glad I couldn't control it because I was, my body was telling the truth when I didn't have to say a word. They immediately separate us and they put us each with um, a border agent so we can't see each other. And then they ask you, they look at your pass- passport, they ask you pretty simple questions about, you know, where you're from, how long were you away and wh- why were you there? And then how much money do you make? And then they get into like the more nitty gritty stuff. <laughs> like, oh, well, like, do you like to drink and party or whatever? And, you know, I was like, yeah, I do. And and they're like, oh, when's the last time you did? And I was like, oh, last week. And they're like, okay, okay. Um, and then they're like, so Miss O'Brien, we just have to ask you a couple questions, a couple further questions. And I was like, okay. And they're like, do you have any drugs in your suitcase? And I was like, no, which I didn't. And they're like, okay, well, just to check, like we're going to go, we're going to send it through this x-ray and then we're going to scan it. And so they scanned it with like an ion scanner and it came up clean. And I could kind of breathe a little bit, but I still couldn't look him in. I couldn't look him in the face. I just couldn't, you know? And then he asked me, okay, well, Miss O'Brien, we're actually going to have to do a, a body search. And he's like, is there anything that you want to say before we do that? Do you, do you have drugs on you right now? And then I had stared at the floor and my ears were ringing so loud, so loud. And it took me so long to answer that I had, they had to ask me again. And that's when I looked up at him straight in the eye and I said, yes. Cause I knew that at this point lying to like a, a border officials face would just further dig me deeper into this mess. And so I, I wanted to tell the truth. I, I had been wanting to tell the truth since I landed, but for obvious reasons, you know, you sometimes you have to think about the safest way out. And at that point, however, telling the truth was the last option. And it, it felt really good to tell the truth. Looking back on it, though, I would think that you know now that when they asked you the first time and you didn't answer, that was really, they knew the answer. Mm-hmm, exactly. Then they're like, okay, well, we're placing you under arrest. And I said, okay. You know, I, I still was like, okay, I thought I could just explain what happened. I I didn't research the criminal code. You know, I didn't, I didn't plan this whole debacle, right? So I didn't truly know how serious it was. And yes, ignorance is not bliss. I can tell you that. So sitting there in the holding cell, like waiting to be processed, I was then arrested by the RCMP, which is like the police for the Canada, basically. Then I was sent to a local jail and they told me, uh, you're not getting out until your parents come and get you out. You know, your friends just can't come bail you out in these situations. It's an offense so serious that you are basically placed on such a high bond. Like my bail was set at $50,000. And I could only get bailed out if someone that they approved would let me live with them throughout the duration of the case. And so that's when I was granted bail and had to live with my mom. My mom was uh, on vacation. She actually got a call when she was on the dock at the cottage with her friends and was like, uh, your daughter's been arrested at the airport. And so she came back. And that's one thing that I truly appreciate to this day was the unconditional love that my parents have for me. And they knew that I was struggling with certain things. They knew that something might happen, but they didn't know it would be this. So they were just glad that I was alive. That is not the phone call that a parent wants to get. Absolutely not. What was her initial reaction when she got that call? She was scared nervous but just wanted to see me so they that's what they did her and my dad were separated at that time but they both came to my my court hearing and they were both there they had got me a lawyer and they really kind of worked together to kind of see what the next steps are going to be because it it came as a shock this type of arrest at least you know you were on two and a half years of house arrest yes yes why was that why so long that was actually kind of short compared to some of the other people that I talked to when I, when I was inside. It's uh, like with my case, they wanted me to 
prove that I was willing to kind of change my habits that got me there. I had to go live with my mother and then we basically had to wait for the next court date or the first court date. And so there's all different kinds of hearings. There's preliminary hearings. And then I I can't even keep track of how many there were, but then I knew that right away I wanted to plead guilty. And so if I had actually fought it and pled not guilty, it would have taken even longer because the court systems are just so backed up. So throughout that two and a half years, I was living on house arrest, going to rehab programs because I knew that my, my substance use had played a pretty significant role, even though I didn't orchestrate it. And I never intended to profit off this trip. I could have maybe not even gone on it if I had, if I had addressed that I was, was struggling. So yeah, two and a half years of that. And, you know, that was probably the toughest period for me because I, still didn't get sober. You know, I spent a lot of time being mad and I just got to a day when I didn't want to be mad anymore. I knew that I could really make something good out of the situation because that's how I was raised and I knew that I had potential. So yeah, after that two and a half years, that's when I was finally sentenced. Uh, We had a court date set for January the 16th, 2018. So for two and a half years, you were on house arrest were you able to work during that time? Did you still have your social media company or what did you do? Yes. Yes, I was. I was able to go to and from work and that was about it. So luckily my work brought me a lot of places. So it was pretty flexible. Whereas if I had worked at one place, I would have, I could have only gone there and back. So having that entrepreneurship part of my life really enabled me to actually do a lot more than, you know, a typical house arrest situation. And I also was able to get creative and I would create more work for myself so that I could continue to, to live and, and meet more people. And cause it's eventually people that are going to be on your side when, cause they know the real you and they, they know your, your reputation and, and all the good that you're capable of doing, right? So, but it was still a nightmare. It was still, I was still very, very paranoid. Um, anytime I saw a police officer or a police car, I would, I would have like panic attacks and cause there was just so much that I didn't know. I didn't know if people were going to come after me. And yeah, it was, it was definitely very, very challenging. When did you find out your actual sentence? I found it out about a year and a half in. I'm oh, sorry. That's I found out that I'd be going to prison for sure about a year and a half in. And then it was about six months before that we agreed um, that we would submit a joint plea bargain, like the prosecutor and the defense lawyer. And when there's a joint submission, the judge is very, judges very rarely disagree. So um, it was a plea of four years. And that doesn't include the time that I spent on house arrest. And with four years in the Canadian prison system, you are eligible for day parole after serving one-sixth of your sentence, which is living in a halfway house, and then full parole after serving one-third of your sentence. Wow, that's not much, right? Does it? I mean, to me, it seems like, yeah, for four-year sentence, you could get out fairly quickly if you, if you did it right. Yeah, so I was out, but like being on house arrest felt like more of a prison because you really can't move forward. You don't know what's happening. You know, you're draining your bank account. Your emotions are a train wreck. Um, your family is walking on eggshells. They're also dealing with being very badly hurt and trying to heal. So that was the worst part. That's why it felt like more of a prison. Whereas going into prison, I had a way cha- like a, a way better perspective on it because I knew that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. That's okay. Now it makes sense. I remember you saying in one of your videos that when you were you were eventually sentenced to four years, and when you found that out, it was kind of a relief knowing that at least there was an end in sight. Yeah, exactly. Because like every time you go to court, you have to you have to pay money, and every time I left the house, I'd be paranoid or what have you. So it was just there was so much unknown that it was debilitating, right? It was paralyzing the unknown on house arrest. So when I finally was like, okay, I want, I want to go. Like, I want to just get this over with. Like my family is, is struggling with this. They're also worried. We know that this, we can make something good out of this. And, and by researching, you know, where I was going. And by, at this point, I did have time to do my research. So I was able to plan a lot more and kind of harness my resources and talk to people that had been incarcerated before and sort of get as much ammo as I could to prepare myself to come out on the other side like stronger and not going angry and bitter and trying to get revenge and everything because that really doesn't get you anywhere. So you had time to think about it before you went to prison and, and to do all this planning and everything. What was the worst thing 
you imagined about prison before you went in? Or what were you worried about? I think the worst thing that I was worried about was being away from my partner at the time, uh, my boyfriend. And, you know, we, we ended up breaking up in prison, which was hard. But after going through that breakup sober and, you know, not being able to just retaliate with like a drink or a random hookup or something like that, it's like you actually become stronger. And so I left prison single, but it was awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad I did. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, most people, when they're headed to prison, they're worried, wow, am I going to have to join a gang? Am I going to get beat up every day? What's my cellmate going to be like? Uh, you know, all these things that, that, that go through your head. Yeah. But you weren't really thinking those things. No, because I wasn't afraid of, like, of risk. I've never been afraid of risk, and I've never been afraid of people. And people do horrible things inside prison, outside prison. People are violent inside prison and outside prison. And I knew that I could be defense, like I could defend myself and I, and I knew that I was feisty enough, but I also knew that I wasn't someone that instigated things and I was someone that listened and I, but I was also not someone to be, just be like walked all over. And I also wasn't going to get myself in trouble in prison because I wanted to get out. And so you really have to have your focus. And I also had a lot of support. You know, I had my family, I had my friends, I had people so excited for me to get out. Whereas often the gangs and other activities that go on in prison are with people that don't really have anyone on the outside and that's become their home. Yeah. That is their life. Yeah. My first day in prison, I was actually kind of twofold. Like I had to spend 10 days at a maximum security unit. So there's the first day there. And that was, you have a cellmate for 10 days and you don't get let out like at all. And then we got transferred to the federal prison because it takes 10 days for you to get processed. And then you're like shipped off to like prison camp or whatever. <laughs> and so that one is like you're in a paddy wagon with 10 other girls. It, it's hot. Um, you're actually shackled. Your hands and your feet are shackled. Then you're shackled to someone next to you. And as they open the back door, you have to like shimmy off the paddy wagon. And <laughs> yeah, it's like pretty barbaric. Again, you know, the, the sun was shining and I just breathed in the fresh air and I was like, okay, this is it. And I even told my parents, I was like, I'm, it's just like I'm going to camp, right? It's like, I'm just going to camp. If I can take a trip abroad knowing nobody and going somewhere where people sometimes tell you not to go because of the risk. And I did that all the time. I would go to places around the world where people were like, oh, it's dangerous there. So this was just like that. And I was never scared to do, to travel. So why would I be scared of this? And I knew that I could learn something. Yeah. And yeah, I love that you decided ahead of time to make that time a positive experience. Yeah, and because negativity and just hate is so exhausting. And I don't like being tired because I have a lot of energy. <laughs> and I also knew that I had I had to appreciate the support that I had as well because my pa my family had put so much energy into this and so much love into this. And I, I, I had to pull all my socks up and I had to know, let them know that I was committed to, to change and committed to coming out like a, a success story. Take us through the scene of when you first got this business idea while you were in, in there. Going into prison, I was annoyed at first. I, it was an inconvenience and I didn't want to leave my business and I didn't want to have to like throw it all away. But then I, when I got to prison, I saw so many other people that ha kind of had the same anxiety as I did, but so much talent and we just wanted to figure out how we were going to reenter the workforce. There weren't very many good programs in prison. And we felt just so misunderstood in the sense that like we're put in this box as like we are bad people. But there's so many people in the world that make the exact same decisions every day and don't get caught or have the resources to hide it. And I kind of wanted to break down those barriers and break down the myths that people in prison are bad and are worthless because that's not true. Like 80% of People in prison are mothers who have just done something to to survive or, you know, been through incredible trauma uh, and suffered tremendous abuse or, or addiction, but really just wanted to start over and to feel like they were worth something again. And in prison, food was something that brought a lot of people together. And, you know, whether that was through themed nights or birthdays, or in this case, the Super Bowl, we we're having a Super Bowl, Bowl party and you know, this is very PG, of course, we basically just made food and watched the game, but popcorn was being shared and people were telling their stories and people were putting their own toppings on it. And I really saw how 
it made people get creative and forget that they were in prison and also find joy and laughter. And that's when I was like, wait a minute, why are there no popcorn companies out there that kind of do more than just pop popcorn? And why are, when I thought about all the popcorn companies that I knew, I was like, well, they're, they're like not really healthy or like there wasn't really a story to them. And I also thought about the price point of popcorn. I knew that from a raw material, raw material perspective, (laughs) you could get it for relatively inexpensive. So I was, I, put two and two and two and two and four together. And I was like, I want to build this into something. And that's kind of when, when the idea was born and I wrote it down in a little notebook because I kept a notebook beside my bed and I would always have these thoughts at night. And I just remember turning on the light, opening my notebook and writing this down. What were you writing in the notebook? I mean, you want, you knew you wanted to start some kind of a business yeah. and it involved popcorn. Yeah. Did you really, did you have a full picture of what it would be like at that point or how did that come about? I didn't at that point, but every day, like everything that I did and every activity that I was involved in, I found a way to like find inspiration from that and, and incorporate it in because I really wanted to help myself, not just myself, but like help other people find work because that was something that, that I was taught at a very young age is like helping others is so rewarding. And, you know, we can work jobs where we make a ton of money and, and whatever, but if it if it doesn't help anyone, like really what's the point? And I've always been taught that giving is also really important and forgiveness. And so combining all those things that I learned and also with the fact that society really doesn't do a good job of helping to reintegrate people that have been locked up and essentially misunderstood, I knew that I could, I could do it because I knew that I was, I'm not, I don't want to say unstoppable because we all are stoppable in certain ways. But once I put my mind to something good or bad, (laughs) right? I've put my mind to something to do you know, pretty negative things, but I can also do really, really good things with it. So everything that happened after that day, whether it was like, how can I incorporate storytelling and or writing, flavor development, um, even the name, the original name was decided by me and my my former residents. It was like a collective decision. So yeah, it was it was just kind of the ideas kept accumulating, and I would write down each thing in in a separate notebook, which I still have today, and I've kind of checked off all those boxes to things that I wanted to wanted to do and how it could really help people, help people get on the right track. And obviously you had the advantage of having already run a business before. So you kind of knew what was involved. Were you able to do like pre-business planning or research while you were in there? Did you have internet access or how did you, how did you make plans for when you were going to get out? See, that was the fun part. Um, I had no internet. But that's that also taught me a lot about what you actually need to do research and need to start something important. It's like you don't need all the fancy bells and whistles. It's you just need raw and organic material and grit and drive and purpose. And I had all of that in there. So I was able to do recipe development based on inspirations from inside prison, um, even like the names and the branding. Uh, we took I took you know, slander that was used against us and put it into the branding to empower people. So like our slogan, popcorn so good it's criminal, was something that was developed on the inside. And then I had um, my friends on the outside actually send me in market research. So I was able to do that. Um, I, I worked with the prison librarian who was a staff member and she would print me off scholarly articles from databases and, and give them to me so I could really start making a case as to why people that had been incarcerated really needed to be in, like supported in and employment initiatives from from corporations because it wasn't just the popcorn right it was popcorn was the the vector to this this bigger mission which is equal opportunity and then even with recipe development i had a my friend he would send me in you know food trend ideas and then the first thing that we did uh, with my friend from the outside we started a blog and we started writing different stories so i would write stories and mail them out to him and he would uh, print them on and upload them to the internet so we were kind of building this brand before i was even out of prison I, I like the idea that you, while you were in prison, you weren't just planning to start a business, but you also had this plan in mind to hire people who were either in there with you at the time or other people who were uh, formerly incarcerated. Mm-hmm. That It seems like that's kind of what gave this a big purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I knew that like I could prove people wrong about myself, but I knew that I, I also had a lot of support and I wanted to help instill confidence in others. And family has always been important to me and and prison, that was a family too. And I met, I have so many great friends that I still talk to from there that 
are doing so well now and like have loved seeing as, as, as the brand has grown. I've actually hired people that I've been sentenced in the same prison with. I've hired people that haven't been to the same prison as me. So it's, it's good. And the more people that you hire, you kind of create this army of proof. And that can really show employers that it's not just, it's not just doing the right thing. It's actually doing the right thing for, or doing the most helpful thing for the society, for the economy and for the individual. So it's, it's this like trifecta of social good. How long were you in prison? I was in the penitentiary physically for 10 months. And then I was in a halfway house for six months. And then I was on full, I got full parole in July of 2019. And so I'm still currently on parole until January, 2022. I would think from the, from the parole board standpoint, you were like the ideal person. I mean, you already had all these plans for when you were going to get out and you were on the right track. And, and it's not like you were trying to deny your guilt or anything like that. You were like, you must've been like the model, the model person in there. Yeah. And like, I think if prison actually worked, I wouldn't be an anomaly. Like by me doing this and showing like how it was done and and why people struggle so much is basically showing that the prison system doesn't actually work for most people. So it's making a point, not just not about me, but what about is really missing. So you, you get out and what's your first step? I mean, what, how did you proceed from there? I had to go to the halfway house. And when I lived in the halfway house, I kind of got started right away. So I started to, I went on the radio. I'd written a letter from prison to the local radio station being like, I love listening to this in prison. And he loved it. He's like, oh, I'm going to have you on. And then I'd written some letters to some authors that I'd read their books and found inspiration by. And so I, and they wanted to meet me. So I went and met them. And then I started speaking at local events. I went into like Toastmasters and started practicing sharing my story. I volunteered to speak at schools and basically start practicing the craft and the, and the art of storytelling and, and impactful storytelling. And then also um, I shared the story with the media and I knew this was taking a risk. I knew that everyone wasn't going to like it. I knew that people would just, you know, ber- some people would just berate me, but I didn't care because I'd been berated for the last three and a half years by the system. So it's like, it, it really meant nothing. And, it, and the importance of telling the story to make a good impact as opposed to being afraid was way much more important than worrying about people's comments. And as the years have progressed, these comments have died off because the proof is really in the popcorn. So as these stories were shared and I did with a local paper and then that got got picked up by another paper, people really were interested in helping because I made the story relatable because it is relatable. It's not just about, you know, having this crazy criminal lifestyle and being like, oh, sorry, it's about no, like this can happen to regular people and it's probably happened to you or someone you know, and we all have to embrace love and, and forgiveness, but also second chances. Were you already selling product during this time? I couldn't sell it when I was in prison because you're not allowed to conduct business as an inmate. <laughs> but um, I did start as soon as as soon as I got out. Um, a local grocery store actually let us pop the popcorn in there. And then there's another company that gave us like a oh, like $2,500 in free labels for our, for our bags. There was another, like there's tons of volunteers that just donated their time and uh, even like money to help support like the growth of the business. So it really is a community built business uh, in, in the sense that people really saw the potential. When people see something like this happening, everybody just wants for you to succeed. I can see why people would want to help you with that. Yeah. And then because... I found out because I'd actually helped them. You know, everyone that helped us was someone that had experienced something similar or had shared their story with their family and it had had helped them. So it was very reciprocal in the sense that it it is inspiring people and it is really helping people get through adversity or rectify situations that have happened or even just make new friends and build new perspectives. Do you remember your first big order? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I actually do. <laughs> what was that? It was so funny because I was living in the halfway house and I was told them I was going out for a friend's birthday and I'll be back by eight o'clock or whatever. And I, for my friend's birthday, I'd actually brought her a bag of this popcorn that I'd been making in the halfway house. And she'd had a couple drinks at dinner. <laughs> you know, not me because, you know, I was not allowed to have drinks. But she had a couple of drinks of dinner and she actually went up to the table next to us and was like, this is my friend's popcorn company. She was in prison. And turns out the people... 
at the table next to us were like billionaires. And one of them had also been involved with the law. And he comes up to me. He's like, really? You started this in prison? And I was like, yeah. He's like, what's your biggest order you had? And I was like, I don't know, maybe 300 bucks, 400 bucks. It's maybe a month after prison. He's like, I'm going to triple that. And he takes out like $1,400 cash and just gives me $1,400 at the table. And I was like, holy, holy shit. Like, this is insane. And he's like, I was like, what flavors do you want? He's like, he's like, I don't care. Just send it here to this address. And then so I, I have to explain to the halfway house that I, that I have like all this cash on me. <laughs> Normally, if you're an, in, like an inmate coming to back to the halfway house, it's $1,400 in cash unexplained. <laughs> it's like so they sketchy. They know something's up. Yeah. yeah. But I was like, no, truly is. And it was like just so exciting. So um, was he buying it to like, was he a grocer or did he just want to buy some for himself? He bought it for um, his friends and like people that worked for him. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But you, your objective initially was to get this on grocery store shelves, yeah. right? Was that your primary distribution plan? No, like, well, it was our eventual distribution plan, but our first plan was to be like a cottage industry, right? And Because that's truly how you build connection. If you go to a big grocery store, there's not going to be someone on the floor that's really talking about your product. Like, you really want to work with small business owners and, you know, people that are holding events. We did so many events when events were happening. We did movie screenings, hockey games, things like that. Even like I would sell it after uh, after I did presentations in classrooms. And because you have to really, there's a lot of rules when it comes to being on a shelf. And so we had to, over the last two years, have really improved like the product, um, its shelf life, all the legal requirements, labeling, everything like that, which which takes time and money, right? So um, so as we've built up some sort of financial cushioning from all the stuff that we've done, we've been able to hold 100% ownership. Like we haven't had to have any investors or anything like that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. If you can do it that way, that is ideal. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're only accountable to yourself. Yes. And, and the people you want to serve, right? And your goals. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the popcorn flavors you offer because these are different you don't find these flavors in other popcorns currently right now like we've done so many iterations over like the last couple years so right now we have a lemon meringue caramel we have a peanut butter caramel we have a cheesy caramel which is getting relaunched in about a month and a half because we wanted to clean up the ingredient deck and we also are launching a sweet and salty in two months and a lemon pepper dill we have a salted chocolate caramel and a double-coated caramel. Oh, and then we're launching a peanut butter and jelly caramel in a month. And this one has been like my baby because peanut butter and, and jelly or peanut butter and jam is like something that was very high worth in prison. So we would like trade it for things. And so I really want to incorporate these these theme, themes from prison into the flavors. And so lemon pepper dill was also a prison recipe. And so is the peanut butter and, and jelly. So very prison-inspired and can help share a story while – you know, evoking nostalgia and, you know, just feel good, feel good feelings. Well, I have to tell you, I have tried your popcorn and I incorporated that as part of my research before our conversation. <laughs> and I'm not even a popcorn eater. I rarely eat popcorn. My wife is the real popcorn aficionado <laughs> in our family. And we ordered the lemon meringue caramel and man, it is really good. Awesome. Yeah. And it's super, super. Uh, you, of course, I'm, you already know that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm biased. But I was surprised because I don't, like I said, I don't really eat popcorn, but this was really good popcorn. And my wife loves it. She was kind of disappointed to find out that I liked it because <laughs> <laughs> that, that means less for her. But yeah. And you, I know you can, you sell this online through your website. You've got, a, it's in a lot of local grocery stores there in Canada. Yes. Right? Yeah. And we also work with a lot of subscription box companies. We filed our trademarks for the U.S. We're launching with like a major Canadian retailer in August. And we are also, we just got picked up by a national distributor as well to go across Canada. So we'll be making that announcement uh, May 3rd. Is it growing as quickly as you expected or? Or what What did you expect when you started it as far as the, the growth trajectory? Um, I knew that I, I would like be so bound and determined to make it a success. I, I honestly didn't see it being involved in so many different areas, like subscription boxes, like like events, birthdays. Just, there's so many different ways that people 
have connected over this popcorn, even like at, you know, AA meetings and stuff like that. Just the whole theme of, of a comeback. So every day I'm, I'm hearing how it helps someone or how it's been shared. We do so much, um, corporate stuff now, especially with COVID-19 and everyone going through adversity. People love to hear about how someone else made it through adversity. And that's like the one thing that I like to encourage is to help encourage others to, to make a comeback and that they can do it, even though you seem like, or it seems like it's never going to end. And there's so much that it's out of your control and it's exhausting, but it will come to an end for sure. So yeah, we've been doing just, just so many awesome things, which is, which is great. And I've met fantastic people and I know it's just going to keep, keep getting, um, more impactful because that's really what we want. And I, I'm even working with government MPs now and working with the bigger institutions that I think need to take responsibility for the change that's needed as well. And you're doing all of this and employing the formerly incarcerated. How, how many employees do you have now? We have four right now, which is amazing. And so what I also do is I work with, I do workshops with other employers and other like chambers of commerce to encourage them to to do the same. And like I said, proof is in the popcorn. Like you can you can walk you can talk the talk all you want in the beginning. And I, I this is my idea, but now over like the last 2 years, like I can say I have a very loyal staff. I have a hard working staff. People from prison, quote unquote, don't just want to steal and, and not show up for for work. They actually are a major asset to to your business and to their family as well. So but you have to put you have to really work together and and know what everyone's needs are. And make it a make it a safe environment for them, and learn how to really help them and make them your family. I can really picture how that would be a successful combination because you know when somebody comes out of prison, there there's not a lot of places where they can go, or they might have trouble finding a job. And when they can come to you and find a job, and not only that, but you're you're happy to take them in and give them a second chance. I would imagine they they don't they really don't want to mess that up. Yeah. Or if like, you know, maybe if popcorn isn't for them, we also work with so many different organizations that have an ecosystem of other employers too. So it's just so important to be, to be connected to organizations that do exactly that as well. So, cause there's definitely room. And you're improving, you're helping them have a, a much better chance for success Yeah, when they get out. What is your website? How can people get this popcorn? Um, you can order it at comebacksnacks.com. So www.comebacksnacks.com slash shop. Or if you just want to check out the website, just head to comebacksnacks.com and you can see the different kind of work that we do, how we've gotten involved and the impact that we're making on a local, national and global scale to support reintegration and second chances. If you want to follow Emily and maybe even try out some of her amazing popcorn, she's on all the socials, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and I have all those links in the show notes for this episode. Or you can check out her website at comebacksnacks.com. And if you like firsthand stories of smuggling drugs, you should check out my episode with Luke. That was episode number two, way back in the early days of this podcast, when Luke told me about the time he swallowed a bunch of bags of cocaine in order to pay off some student loan debt. He got through the airport okay, but then one of the bags burst in his stomach. Here's a short clip from that episode. I actually did go into the restaurant temporarily. Whenever they first, like, whenever I first started to dry heave, I knew I needed to get out of the, the hotel. I was standing there in the lobby and it was, it was bad. And the hotel clerk receptionist is like, do you need me to call the hospital? Cause it was really bad. I couldn't even talk to her. And I'm like, no, no. And I basically just rushed out. I went over to the subway across the street because I was afraid that these packages being the size that they were would end up in my esophagus and start choking me and being by myself. It was not a good scenario. And so I went into the subway, managed to maintain myself enough to buy a couple giant bottles of water, and then went outside into the parking lot and sat down because I was just feeling so terrible. And before we get to the listener story, I wanted to let you know that Raw Audio Episode 14 is now live. The Raw Audio series are bonus episodes available to anyone who signs up to support the show for $5 a month. In this new episode, a young man calls 911 for his father. Hey, tell me exactly what happened there. Somebody has entered my house when I was away and they shot my father. He is dead. A man calls when his BMW gas pedal gets stuck at 100 miles per hour. 
Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I believe my gas pedal is stuck in my car and I'm on the I-95. And a young woman calls 911 while hiding under her bed during a home invasion. Please hurry. 105. Hurry. Who's robbing you? Lay down right now. A whole bunch of people. To get all the raw audio episodes and the ad-free version of this podcast, sign up at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, here's this episode's listener story. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you in two weeks. When I was four, my mother and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in downtown Vancouver. In the summer, there was suddenly a smell. Then it became a bad smell. And soon after that, it was unbearable. My mother called the landlord about the smell, and they didn't do anything. The smell got even worse, till one day, my mom had enough and went to examine the cause. She sniffed and smelled around on each floor of the building, until she got to the apartment directly above ours. She knocked then banged. No answer. She came back for two days every few hours and banged on the door. Still no answer. She then wrote a letter and tried to stuff it under his door, but it wouldn't squeeze through as the space in between the floor and the door was so narrow and the hallway carpet was also blocking the way. So she went to put it in the unit's mailbox in the front area of the building. When she got there, the mailbox was stuffed full, and there was a sticker on from the post office, probably saying they could not deliver mail to the box from being so full. When she discovered the mailbox full, it dawned on her something might be wrong. Her and I went back to our apartment, and she called the police. Within the hour, two police officers showed up and started banging on the upstairs apartment door. The building was so old and run down that we could hear everything. Every bang, the dispatcher on the radios, every step, and then eventually them coming back downstairs to our unit. They asked my mom who or where the landlord was, and she explained how he lived elsewhere and how she had called to complain repeatedly, only to be ignored. The officer then asked my mom to call the landlord and give him the phone. Landlord answered, and the officer identified himself to him and asked for access to the unit or had landlord come do an emergency inspection. The guy was there in 10 minutes. As soon as he got to the building, my mom grabbed me into her arms and we followed the landlord and the officers upstairs. The landlord banged on the door, announced he was doing an emergency inspection, then unlocked the door. I really wish that my mother would have just left me in our apartment watching TV or something, because when that door was opened, directly across from the entrance to the apartment was the guy who lived there, dead. He had slashed his own wrists and taken a bunch of pills while sitting at his kitchen table. He was dead for weeks and bloated so bad, his skin was splitting, and he had maggots coming out of his mouth and out of his nose. I saw it all, as everyone in the hallway was completely stunned, and my mother couldn't even process what she was seeing, never mind what I was seeing. And if we thought the smell was bad before, we were immediately proven wrong the second that door was opened. It was such a horrific smell and sight that the landlord ran outside to throw up multiple times. The police called the coroner, and they took the body out of the building. After he was out, they were gone and never came back, as it was very clear what had happened. The landlord came to our apartment a couple hours later as my mother was looking in the newspaper for a new place, and offered her a deal. She could have the next three months rent-free if she cleaned the apartment upstairs out and got it ready to be repainted. 
She reluctantly agreed, but got to it that day. She took me upstairs and instructed me to sit in this person's living room and wait while she started cleaning up all the blood and other miscellaneous dried bodily fluids off the kitchen floor. After she did that, she started going through his possessions, looking to see if there was a family member that she could call to collect the deceased's belongings. It sadly found no such information. She contacted one of the officers that came to our apartment to see if they knew of anyone, but unfortunately, he had no known living family that they could find. She waited a week, just in case somebody showed up, before she had to clear the belongings and furniture out of the unit. She eventually got everything out and scrubbed that place as best she could, but the smell just would not go away. We went to a store and bought the stuff called Nil Odor. It was a spray can that was supposed to remove any odor from places it was used. My mother used six full cans over four days. Not only did it not remove the smell, but it mixed it with its own smell and created a whole new level of awful. We went back to the store and explained how it didn't work at removing the smell at all. They said it was not the right kind, and she should have used the nil odor drops, which she promptly bought. She used the entire bottle of that over a few days and still could not get rid of the smell of the rotting corpse out of the apartment. It now just smelled like chemicals and death. The smell was still so awful, and she could not take it anymore. We moved about a week later, as it was just too much. She stayed in contact with another person who lived in the apartment, found out that the building still smelled of the noxious awfulness six months later. To this day, if I smell nil odor, I have vivid flashbacks to that door being opened with me in my mother's arms, staring directly at this festering mass of rotting death and the terrible realization that his whole life was shoved into bags and thrown into a dumpster, and there were no loved ones to remember or mourn him. This was my first experience with trauma that even 35 years later still haunts me to this day.